So welcome once again to another Coffee and Heroes podcast. We're delighted to be back with another creator interview and it is no less than our 200th episode. And this is actually our second 200th episode. We like to do a little bit of a, a variant tease here. Two different creators, both from our part of the world, no less as well. But for today's guest, you know, needs no introduction, but hey, I'm going to do it anyway. So I think the words industry legend do get bandied about a lot, but they are particularly pertinent when talking about today's guest. It's actually probably easier to list the companies he hasn't worked with as opposed to the ones that he has. He's worked for DC, Vertigo, Marvel, Image, Dynamite, Avatar, TKO, Aftershock, Rebellion, the list goes on and on. He was a massive part of arguably the greatest era of creator-driven comics with the Vertigo era under Karen Berger ushering in a frankly ridiculous time of top-level comics and amazing creators at the top of their game. He revitalized Punisher with Marvel Comics, spearheading a new label under the Marvel Max Comics, uh, with issues and series aimed at an older, more discerning audience. And that's even before we mentioned The Boys, Preacher, and way too many others. So your host is always Alan, owner of Coffee and Heroes in Belfast, uh, joined today by Keith as ever for a Q&A session with none other than Garth Ennis. Good evening, sir, and how are you keeping? Doing good, thank you, and thank you for that lovely introduction. I do get complimented for my intros. I find it's always good. It relaxes the the creative talent to just massage <laughs> that ego a little bit, you know. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, let's let's start off with you know a big question. We are a Northern Irish comic book podcast, of course. You know, you're a comic creator originally from here. For our listeners, you know, tell us a little bit about whereabouts you're from and what it was like being a a comic book fan in Northern Ireland at the time you were getting interested. So I was born in Belfast, but grew up in Hollywood. Went to school there as well. Did about a month, month and a half at Queens, and then left to write comics. As to the the comics I read when I was a kid, it, it was actually a, a, a kind of a weird quirk of the distribution peculiar to Northern Ireland, or at least my part of Northern Ireland, that that in a weird way got me where I've where I've gotten to because I, unlike most people in this business i saw very few american comics as a kid you would see them from time to time in the news agent but not with any regularity it would be it would have been very hard for me i think to build up any kind of a coherent run on any of those books now compare that with john mccray who lived in belfast and with enormous effort and by visiting every news agent he possibly could he could reach on his on his bike managed to get a decent run of marvel and dc comics of various titles i never did i didn't really know that was an option because what got a lock on my imagination on that age um and there were no problems with distribution here were the british comics of the era and this is where i got lucky 2000 ad and battle and commando and various other titles too but those were the ones that really did it um, you had the picture libraries as well, war and battle picture libraries. It's it's because of that that when I look, look back on my past, and everyone looks back on their past when they're talking about um, the influences on their comics work, uh, it's pretty much all British comics. I don't discover American comics in any real way until I'm in Crean's bookshop, now long gone in 1986 and i find a copy of the trade paperback of dark knight and that is my first american comic cover to cover and that so as you can as you can imagine that gives me something of a skewed take on things and it's why my attitude towards traditional american stuff is a bit off 
That's that's fair to say. I mean, the the problem there is once you start off with Dark Knight Returns, it's all downhill from there. <laughs> that's that is largely what I found. I I I thought that what I'd done was clearly clearly been wrong. Obviously, American comics were great after all those funny wee things I saw on the news agents and sort of picked up and leafed through, but never really got much of a sense of what was happening. I'd been wrong about that. So I rushed out straight away and bought about a dozen American imports. And of course, they were all awful because Dark Knight, I didn't realize it, but Dark Knight was a quantum leap. Dark Knight was not just this fantastic piece of pulp fiction where the Batman characters, which I knew from the old Adam West show, mm-hmm. you know, I was familiar with them from that, uh, where those characters are treated with uh, a kind of degree of maturity and dignity that they never really had before. It, it's not just this amazing piece of Pulp Fiction. It is a leap forward for comics in format, in scope, in everything. And it left everything else far behind, of course. Um, th- this is something that I realized in uh, over the, the coming years as I got a much better sense of the American industry. At that time in, in Belfast, Garth, uh, you'd be very close to Talisman taking root. I know um, that would that be correct? That's that's right. Um, I think it was Dark Horizons first. I think they came along in 87 and then Talisman, which of course is now FP Belfast, um, at the very beginning of 88. So it would have it would have been they would have been on their way at that point, yeah. Making it much easier to get a hold of uh, runs and, uh, and sort yeah. of what you needed, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but of course, by then, you know, my my sense of these things is is pretty much set. I haven't read Dark Knight and then things like Electra and Watchmen and Concrete and the the, the better American stuff that's coming out at the time. Um, it, it's very hard for me to go back and read runs on regular American comics by by most of the writers and artists uh, around at the time with with any degree of interest. I can't really take that stuff seriously because, as I say, there has been this quantum leap. If I had seen that stuff as a kid, a little kid, when I was reading 2000 AD and Battle and so on, if I if I'd seen those American titles, then there is no question that they would have the same lock on me, that, that sort of mixture of nostalgia uh, and sentimentality that the things you read as a kid uh, give you. Um, but but I didn't read them then, so I never had that. And if if they don't get you as a kid, I would say they just don't get you. I think there's a certain amount of truth to that. I mean, as Keith said, I get into comics a little bit later. I mean... I watched all the animated series and things like that when I was younger, but I never really get into comics properly until Batman Begins came out. I was working in a cinema. I was more in the movies. And then a friend handed said, oh, you enjoyed that. Here's Batman Year One. This is what it was based on. And I read that. And, you know, I've never looked back since. So, you know, I'm, I'm honing in on 20 years of collecting and, and reading and enjoying anyway. But as you say, I maybe came in at a more mature era, you know, where comics were yeah. aimed maybe at an older audience and there was yeah. more craft I mean- and more refinement. If the first thing you're handed is Batman Year One, then in a way like me with Dark Knight, you you have an enormous advantage, but at the same time, you have a very skewed view mm-hmm. of the rest of the US industry because you're going to find out rapidly that not much stands up to that standard. Yeah. Well, I mean, not much stands up to Batman anyway, but I'll leave Keith to argue that one with me. 
<laughs> we would we would very classically Garth uh, I would adopt a pro Marvel stance and uh, and uh, oh, Alan too. Alan a pro DC stance while while both buying more indie than anything else you know but sure it makes for it makes for good chats uh, very much so I mean obviously with reading Dark Knight Returns first did that mean that you were once you did get into comics at that level did that make you more of a DC guy or was there Marvel stuff you were enjoying at the time as well or or indeed independent um, stuff coming through. I, I've never really had much sense of company loyalty in that sense. I go where I, I find good stuff. Mm -hmm. And that was a really interesting period because, as I say, Dark Knight, Watchmen, Swamp Thing, Miracle Man, Elektra, Ronan, Concrete, uh, Peter Bagg is doing neat stuff at that point. It, it's just a year or so before British comics makes its own attempt on what we'll call maybe the adult market, the more mature market. And there is this incredible overflowing cauldron of amazing talent producing these incredible stories. And it, it really gives you the sense that comics are about to go through the roof uh, creatively and then every other way. Not quite what happened, but it was, it was an incredible time, uh, I think, to be well, to be thinking about comics and to be thinking about, as I was, getting into the industry. Uh, on that, I guess, on that point, um, so you're, you're going from a from a comic fan about the, the Belfast area to breaking into the industry. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, how, how did how did that happen? How did you break into the industry? Was that was that always your aim to get into the, the comics industry or did you have um, other aspirations? I, I think... For, for most of my sort of mid to late teenage years, I'd had uh, sort of vague creative ambitions. And the more uh, I read of the comics that were being produced, the more I thought that comics were for me. They, they, they seemed to be growing and evolving in a very, very quickly and in a very interesting way. And I thought this is for me. And I, I really admired what I was seeing from, from people like Alan Moore, who I was able to follow from 2080 into American comics um, and the people I was discovering in the American industry. I thought, yes, this is for me. Oh, I should say, by the way, that um, fandom at the time in Belfast, I mean, I, I, I guess it existed and it certainly crystallized around those two stores when they opened. But I wasn't really aware of it to any great degree. Uh, the, the brushes with fandom I had would have been more when I visited London, which I did a couple of times uh, in the early to mid 80s and was able to visit Forbidden Planet, uh, which, of course, was advertised in 2008. You saw the ads at the time mm -hmm. and you, it was the home of Titan Books and everything. And it was there that I got a sense seeing, you know, the whole store full of these American imports, full of original artwork for sale, full of fanzines, a couple of which I bought and saw people writing seriously about comics for the first time. That was that was really part of my, my brief brush with fandom before I got into the business itself. I, I never really had a chance to immerse myself in that fully. But what happened was, in the end, it was very simple. Crisis, which was the political comic that 2000 AD published, and, and had a, a great deal of hope and ambition for, I mean, there was a lot riding on that comic, had a signing tour and it went all over the UK and it also came to Talisman in Northern Ireland. And I went along and I met Pat Mills and John Smith and Jim Bakey. Uh, and I also met Steve McManus, the editor. 
And I got talking to him and I said, would you be interested in a story about the Troubles here in Northern Ireland, which in 1988 were still very much mm. uh, ongoing. And he said, that's exactly what we'd want. That's exactly the kind of story that we set this comic up to, to publish in the first place. So that would have been about October or November. I went home, wrote up an outline, sent it in. And on my 19th birthday, the following January, I thought, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained and called the office. And instead of, yeah, we'll call you, I got, uh, oh, yeah, we we like that. We wanted to talk to you. And that was basically how it started. Yeah. After I put the phone down, I had to sort of slap myself a bit like, did that really happen? <laughs> but it did. I bet you were glad you made that phone call. I was. I, was. <laughs> I mean, they, they said they'd uh, they said they were going to call me anyway. But who knows? It might have been one of those yeah. things where, if I hadn't, the guy would have gone to something else on the to do list or to someone else. He might have reached into the submissions pile, and and found something else. So probably a good job I called. Yeah, good. I mean, good good for all of us, Garth, because we're saying <laughs> that. Uh... You know, you you've kind of been a trailblazer for for creators from from Northern Ireland and, and Ireland getting into the uh, getting into the industry. And you know, we have we've been lucky enough to interview uh, quite a few folks. And uh, and yeah, so I mean, you, you've never been shy about uh, I guess taking taking others with you. Uh, mm. You know, p- paving the road, and that's uh, something I think we're all fairly fairly grateful for. Mm. Good. Yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned PJ. He's an obvious one. Uh, Love working with PJ uh, and, and obviously John McRae. Although just thinking about it, I I wouldn't technically I wouldn't have been the first because Will Simpson had already been working in in comics for three or four years at that point. I think he had Gary Leach and Dave Elliott had a had a sort of a creative partnership. Mm. So it's um, all been alive. Anyway, it's it's all built upon a lie then. <laughs> yeah, the whole thing uh, built on a foundation of sand. <laughs> well, I mean, you mentioned there it was obviously when you were nineteen. You submitted that outline and so forth. I mean, <clears throat> you you then obviously embarked on a long, you know, creative career. And during that time, did you adapt a very set process for writing? You know, are you a very strict nine to five kind of guy, or are you a night owl, or or is it just whenever inspiration uh, takes hold? Generally, I work in the afternoon and early evening. I don't really care when I work so long as it gets done, but I do, I try to live reasonably social hours. I, I think I was probably still writing in the wee small hours in my mid-twenties, but you get to a certain point and you just realize, you know, there's no need for this. There's no particular point for this. It takes you out of sync with everything else, so why bother? So I've been reasonably i've kept reasonably social hours for the last 25 years or so and like i say so long as it gets done you know so I, there could be a day where i do nothing there could be a day where i write 10 or 12 pages i'm sure one day is more satisfying than the other <laughs> in that case i mean what about your relationship as as a writer with with the artist you mentioned pj there and and so mm-hmm. forth i mean how collaborative is the process between you and the artist you work with do you both sort of stay in your own lanes as writer and artist or are you back and forth and ideas uh much more than that uh it, it varies from artist to artist there are some people who you don't have to do anything you just give them the script and let them go most obviously steve dylan he and i never talked about work at all 
um that surprises people sometimes but we never really talked about it we just each of us trusted the other to get home with a job and uh, i think it because of that experience I, I i think it just led to so much so much good work uh because each of us had the experience of of finding someone they clicked with um more recently i've worked with steve epting and chris burnham guys who i'd heard of and liked to work but had never worked with and there's always a little anxiety when you work with someone for the first time because you're you're, you're thinking will they get it do they know what i'm going for here and then the pages came in and in both cases it was like they'd been looking in my head <laughs> it was perfect that's you know that's you can't ask for a better experience than that other artists need to be sort of kept on the straight and narrow as it as it were there are people i mean i won't mention anyone but there are people who uh their attention wanders they're in a hurry they try to do two or three pages in the time it would take to one to do one good one and you find yourself having to say to them no look at the script the script says x y and z you've drawn a b and c mm -hmm. and if you do that the sequence that you're drawing will make no sense in the overall narrative look what happens and what i something else i try to do is provide the entire story all the scripts like if it's a mini series all four or all six scripts before the oh. artist has to draw anything so he can read them all and he can go through and that way there'll be no surprises for him in the last episode he won't draw something he shouldn't draw something in the first episode that makes a sequence in the last one impossible and that's why with with the kind of what would you say scat ear artist that i do sometimes work with you do find yourself having to say that to people look if you do this here in episode one it will make no sense later when this has to happen in episode six and those are the people that you, you do have to keep a tighter rein on because because their attention wanders because they're just programmed differently mm. to the more the more sort of coherent one brick at a time guys like i was uh, th that i was talking about earlier mm. and nothing like a northern irish accent to keep people on the street in Oro. <laughs> I find uh, I find a discreetly worded email usually. <laughs> well, you've mentioned there, you know, you like to give artists the entire story if it's a mini series, the entire script, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. So, does that mean that you would tend to focus on one project at a time, or are you quite proficient in juggling multiple titles at any one time? Um, I used to be better at that, at what you've just described. I mean preacher and hitman and later on the punisher i wrote one week on one week off and i had no trouble as i've gotten older i find it easier to focus on one thing for the the period it takes to to write the whole story now that's not always possible on something like the boys there was no way i could write 90 episodes in one go it, it just wouldn't have been economically viable for the publisher um but what i did do was i broke it down into story arcs so when russ braun was doing one of his he would have all four issues john mccray would have all four issues and so on and so forth and one of the, when john was doing say the highland laddie miniseries he had the whole thing uh when he started um since then because i haven't really been doing what we call longer form stories it's been much easier to just give artists all four or all six so that they have them before they get stuck in or if not damn close to it 
Yeah, and obviously talking about juggling projects, you you also juggle work between you know DC, you know recently Batman Reptilian, Marvel, Punisher, Soviet, indie companies, Land and Eagle, and so forth. I mean, how do do you find that the companies differ in different uh, in any way, or is it just a case of you know given how long you've been working in the industry, do you have a lot of freedom with the projects you work on, or are you heavily edited at one over the other, or anything like that? There are little differences. They tend to be more technical. They tend to be more to do with uh, organization and structure. So, for instance, um, you work for DC, you get a very carefully figured out royalty statement exactly every three months. At Marvel, it's a good deal more random. But when it comes to actually working for them, well, what I find is it's not a question of company so much as people. It's it's finding people on the editorial level that you can trust. You need you need people to keep the rest of the company at bay. Which sounds like an odd thing to say, but there there can be elements at, at any company that will get in your way. People who aren't maybe your biggest fan, people who don't like what you're doing with the characters, whereas the editors you work for. They're the they'll be expert at negotiating those particular river rapids and making sure that those people can't interfere. Sometimes it's sometimes it's not even as malevolent as that. Sometimes it's just a lack of coherence, a lack of organization at the company, and the the you trust the editor to keep that stuff out of your way. Um, so at DC, I've been friends with Marie Javens for twenty or twenty five years. She runs the place, so I don't have much trouble at DC. Mm -hmm. At Marvel, I work with uh, an editor called Nick Lowe, who's quite senior, but I've known Nick for 20 years. I mean, I think I think we met when he was about 20, 21 or something. And he and I clicked in that sense, and he proved to be very, very good at negotiating my stuff through the territory, as it were, at, uh, at Marvel. So you, what you do is you find people you can trust, and then you're 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 free to do work for uh, work for those companies. Now that's doing work for hire uh, on company owned characters like the ones you talked about. If, if it's at the indie companies, well, then you go where it's again, it's a question of trust people you trust, but you're also looking for the best creator owned deal. So I work for Aftershock, where I, who run by Joe Pruitt, who I've known for a long time. Upshot run by Axel Alonso, known him. Uh, since since the mid '90s, and again, it's trust. So, but it's it's at, because it's going to be creator owned. You are looking for that good deal. You are looking for uh, the best possible um, circumstances or, or conditions under which to do the uh, the book you're doing. So, ultimately, it's a it's a question of um, conditions plus competence. You might say. Well, that's fair. I mean, you mentioned Aftershock there as well. And, you know, The Land and the Eagle was a recent release, just finished off the, <laughs> the four issues, Trade on the Way. And one one thing I've wanted to ask a writer about with regards to this is we'd asked PJ about his thoughts, you know, on the bigger mm -hmm. page format, you know, like DC Black Label 2000 AD size, that kind of thing. Does that affect the writing process in any way or do you just, you know, write for the page and that's it? You know, I'm just genuinely curious, do you think in bigger yeah. scope or or does it not affect um... it at all? Not much, although with that book and forthcoming Jimmy's Little Bastards and the Battle Action book, because it's it's all roughly the same page size, I might find myself writing in a couple of extra panels. Mm -hmm. Is something, um, something in that format 
where you'll have a bit more space compared to the traditional American format where a seven panel page, even a six panel page is often a bit much to ask of an artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just genuinely curious because we, we go back and forth on this. Keith hates that size of format. He calls it silly size comics because it doesn't mm-hmm. fit in a comic box. Whereas I love it because right. I think it feels big <laughs> and cinematic and, you know, and, and well, 2018 first... size boxes are available. Yeah, I mean, creatively, I like it very much, and it it really did grow on me over the period. But uh, the first thing I thought of when they told me they were going to do it, when they sent me a few other books other people had done in that format, the first thing I thought was, what are retailers going to say about this? Mm -hmm. Uh, The answer to that would appear to be, very broadly speaking, it depends on the project. Lion and the Eagle seems to have done, Aftershock have told me, quite well. Mm Mm-hmm but they have had other books in that format that haven't done so well and that's where the complaints tend to come from so in other words commercial success seems to have overcome um those kinds of technical objections in this one case that doesn't mean it always will yeah i think that's fair i mean dc have obviously done a lot of black label books and we've certainly seen fluctuations uh, at our store anyway you know you stick batman on a book it's probably going to sell well whereas I think the best right. book through DC Black Label has actually been Harleen, which was fantastic, but it wasn't a big seller for us. But, but uh, no, I was just interested on, on, from a writer's point of view. But um, we'll, we'll we'll move away and into into your work a little bit more at this point. I mean, you have a massive body of work, you know, to to call back on, you know, and so much of it is trailblazing and successful, you know, from the Punisher Max run to Preacher at Vertigo to Crossed with Avatar and to the Boys is. Is there any particular run that stands out to you that was just so much fun and so creatively satisfying? Many of them were, and so so it's hard to pick one that really stands out. I know out. it's like saying, do you have a favorite child? But, you know, you, you have yeah. to ask these things. I mean, I can tell you my favorites. <laughs> that's easy enough. Uh, but but as to, you know, what, what stood out as a really fun experience, I, I might mention Preacher just because there was a sense of uncharted territory. I, what... What are we doing here exactly? And how far can we go? And what will happen if we do this? And God, it looks like it's worked. Shall we go further and further into this into this strange, dark country we've somehow managed to, to invent here? Yes, let's. And so there was a kind of a thrill to that. Beyond that, Hitman, maybe as well, because it was the same, it, it it gave you that same feeling, but in the DC universe. Perhaps nowadays I don't quite get that same sense of the unknown of uncharted territory, or or at least not not in the sense I'm talking about, where you're pushing creative boundaries. Mm-hmm. What what can be very satisfying uh, nowadays is doing something like battle action, and finding that uh, with the right approach there is an audience for this older stuff. That if you can isolate what's what's great about those characters and bring it out into stories and get the best artists on it possible. You can breathe life into these old characters and you can tell the audience about these characters and the writers and artists that, that created them. So I, I think in terms of, uh, you, you know, that sort of creative rush uh, or, or of just having fun, I think the emphasis has changed a bit, but there is, there is less of that sense of the unknown because I, I think the, the answer to the question now uh, how far can we go is as far as we like. 
Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I mean, and that's exactly what you were saying about, about battle action there. I mean, you, you did exactly that, what you set out to do, you know, telling stories with, with those established characters and, you know, with those wee vignettes you had between the stories, sort of reintroducing right. or introducing people to the creators. So that was mission accomplished right there, um, mm. for sure. With regard to, to pushing boundaries and uh, and sort of going as far as you can, we have a question from uh, a regular customer of the store and a big fan, mm. Alan McCourt. And mm. he asks, was there ever a moment that you looked at what you were about to send off and thought there's no way they're printing this? Yeah, you know, I always get that sooner or later. And the answer is there have been times where I've thought it and I've just thought, what the hell, go ahead anyway. We'll soon find out. And I I don't think I've ever had a moment where I've been a bit nervous about something and that that anxiety has been vindicated. Usually when you run into stuff you can't do, you're surprised by it. You're thinking you're upset about this, but you're perfectly happy to let me do that. <laughs> um, that that can be kind of odd. Of course, the, the thing is that once I started uh doing the majority of my work for independent comics in the kind of early aughts that in a way became a moot point mm. because again and again what i heard from publishers was whatever you want to do we'll take it and i think after the little kerfuffle over the boys that saw it move from um dc to dynamite there was very much a sense of come on with this guy you know what you're getting Mm. can't complain if you get what you knew what you were going to be getting so that's been less of an issue really yeah i mean speaking of which i'm a huge fan of uh chronicles of wormwood uh, oh right, right really really enjoyed what you did there probably no need for you ever to return to that word but i'd be right there with you if you did now ah, well you know I'm, i might someday um i like the characters very much too mm. and uh jason burrows he and I have talked about maybe going back at some point. Uh, it, it's hard to say because um, Avatar are a bit up in the air at the moment. And uh, apart from anything else, I don't have an exact story. All mm. I have is a feeling that I like the characters. I'd like to see uh, Jimmy the Rabbit again. <laughs> and Classic. I'd like Danny, and I'd like to see all the others. Yeah. yeah. I mean, speaking of indie runs, I mean, the likes of Preacher and The Boys especially, I mean, those are... Those are long runs for indie stories. You know, so many indie titles these days, a long run is seen as 30 issues or less, you know, but those were long <laughs> runs. I mean, were they always planned out to be as long as they were or was that a reaction to the success of the titles? With Preacher, there was a sense, I think, of jumping into the dark and crossing your fingers. If, if you remember from around that time, a lot of people, not just myself, were coming off the the DC titles that they'd taken into Vertigo, myself on Hellblazer, Grant on Doom Patrol and Animal Man, uh, Jamie Delano, uh, Peter Milligan, and, people, and they, they were then doing these new creator-owned books, uh, Preacher in my case, Invisibles in Grant's case, and so on. And, and it was a case of sort of spending the commercial capital you'd built up on the DC books and seeing if you could spin spin that into success on your own creator own book. But of course, there was no guarantee whatsoever. You you look at the history of Vertigo and it's far more missed than hit. 
I mean, as retailers, you must be aware of the number of books that came out and went under in, in less than a year. Sometimes it, it got sort of, it was almost tragicomic the way you could see some of those, um, those vertigo books come out and think, you know, for every preacher or why or invisibles, there's about a dozen others that just go splat. Mm -hmm. So in the case of preacher, it was very much like, let's hope this works. And when it did, when it did uh, achieve the degree of success that it's, that it did, and it, it became not exactly obvious, but very, very likely that, yes, this thing was going to make it, this thing was going to go the distance. At that point, I could start thinking about what it would look like as a five-year run, what that story would be like uh, told over the, the, the 66 issues. It was, for instance, around about the middle of the second year that I figured out how it ended. And then if you compare that with if you compare that with the boys, which um, I began roughly 10 years after I began Preacher, by that stage, things are a lot more solid. My career's better established. Preacher and the Punisher have done their work for me in that regard. And if I decide I want to do a new ongoing book and it'll last six, seven years, whatever, then there's there's a likelihood of that of that working out that will allow any publisher to fairly confidently take a punt on me um and that meant that for me creatively i could figure the whole thing out in advance that doesn't mean i didn't leave myself a bit of leeway in creative terms i gave myself plenty of space to sort of fill in gaps with things that occurred to me at the time there's there's no question that I knew roughly how the thing would go and I definitely knew how it would end. And I had particular scenes in mind. Uh, almost as soon as I thought up Butcher, actually, I imagined him I imagined the scene where he pins the guy to the wall and guts him with the uh guts him with the bread knife. Uh I think it's a carving knife. Small details. Saying over and over again, why'd you kill me dog, mate? Why'd you kill me dog? That was something that, that came to me almost as soon as Butcher himself did. Yeah, I mean, you, you recently returned to the boys, of course, with, you know, the Dear <laughs> Becky miniseries. I mean, what had you wanting to return to that world? And, and of course, people are probably wondering, are there any future plans to revisit again anytime soon? Or, or, or have you closed the book on the boys? Second answer first, probably nothing else to come doesn't mean I, I i might not go back someday but for the minute i think you could call that one done perhaps not as done as say preacher is preacher is absolutely definitely unquestionably finished mm. um partly because that story ended exactly in the way uh, i thought it should and partly because i could not in good conscience do that book again without steve dylan it's just not possible mm. but uh the boys who knows maybe someday but for now that happy to happy to let it rest as for dear becky i wanted to write becky really a, a character i thought that worked tremendously well in the original run but uh for the long long shadow that she casts over the story and over the character of butcher she's only actually in it for two issues and i really liked writing her and i liked writing her and butcher together and that's why I went back and took the opportunity to just write as much uh, as much more material with Becky as I could. I just wanted to say more about what the two of them were like when they were together and the influence she had on him. I mean, and, uh, we can't we can't talk boys without 
talking the TV series because I mean, right. for us, uh, for both myself and Alan and many around, it's one of the very best things on TV at the minute. Can't think mm-hmm. of another series like it. Has has the success of it surprised you? And beyond that, have you been more surprised with just how much extreme content they've been able to portray on screen? Um, again, second answer first. Uh, no, because I think I think that as the thing has progressed everyone audience and executives have realized that that's part of the appeal it's like i'm going to tune in this week to see i don't know oh my god what might i see this week what's waiting for me you know what's going to be pasted to the back of my eyeballs after an hour of this (laughs) this week so i think that is part of the appeal and as for the success of it um partly because i think eric kripke is is such an expert at isolating what's successful about any given story and translating it into TV terms. Um, and partly because I think the boys absolutely hit the sweet spot. No, the success of it hasn't surprised me too much. Uh, I should say that my answer to, to that question has been throughout my entire career. Um I'm not surprised it succeeded, but if it had fallen flat, that wouldn't have surprised me either because <laughs> sometimes you just sometimes you just can't plan for these things. But when I talk about the sweet spot, what I mean is um, after 20 years of Marvel and DC movies laying the groundwork uh, for the mainstream public, not the comic reading public, but the mainstream public, the cinema going and TV watching public and educating them to the notion of shared superhero universes where you're walking down the street and uh, Daredevil chases someone past you and the Hulk comes through a wall and then 10 more yards and Spider-Man swings past. They all live in the same place. Mm-hmm. There's a world that has been populated by and um, uh, changed by this superhuman population um that i think laid the groundwork for the boys in fine style Mm. and people people will generally uh, there's always a subsection of people generally who will enjoy seeing the piss taken out of something that they themselves love and enjoy people who can watch the films and tv shows that i've talked about and enjoy them on the level they're intended but then watch something like the boys and see the thing they love being ripped to bits and enjoy that too. And they won't, there's no dichotomy there. They can enjoy both approaches for what they are. So yeah, I, the boys unquestionably find its moment. I think part of the success of the boys, and this is going to make me sound so old, but I'm going to say it anyway. But I think part of the success is because the casting has been so great, because the moments have been so great, because it's been so well filmed and it's a series of moments it then translates into that younger generation, meme-worthy, gif-worthy sort of mm. generation. I mean, you, you can't scroll through Twitter without seeing a meme, which is Anthony Starr's Homelander laughing at surprise that when he killed somebody, everybody was happy about it. You know, you, you mm-hmm. have uh, Carl Urban saying, well, 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 if it isn't the invisible, this is a, a lot of swear right now. <laughs> right. But I, I, I kind of feel that. I mean... Like Sandman is an example. Now, I haven't watched Sandman yet. We watch one show at a time, so it's next to my list. But Sandman, mm-hmm. I don't see entering that realm because maybe it's a slightly more serious show. Whereas with The Boys, which, as you say, it takes the piss a little bit. It has a bit of fun. It just enters mm-hmm. that meme-worthy generation a little bit. Maybe so. Maybe so. I mean, it it is it is easier to take wisecracks 
and uh, and one-liners and uh, and turn them into gifts and the kind of things you're talking about then it would be and i haven't seen the show either but i i did read the comic then it would be to maybe pull stuff out of sandman uh and have you know a 10 line speech from morpheus mm. um because as i recall the sandman did like to talk <laughs> and it would be hard to turn that that into a sort of snappy answer to some political or historical injustice whether or not that's a good or bad thing that's up to you to decide but yes the boys show does fit what you're talking about far better. Yeah, I think it's just an, a way for it to easily jump into the social consciousness a lot easier because people may not watch it, but they see this in their Twitter timeline and they see it utilized in a fun way and they go, well, what's this from? And then they go and discover the show. So there's more organic ways to discover it through that, through that method. But uh, no, I'd mentioned the casting, you know, as I say, is, is fantastic. You know, Anthony Starl, Carl Urban are definitely standouts, but how happy were you to see Simon Pegg turn up as Huey's dad? Oh, that was nice. That was really <laughs> nice. Uh, I mean, Simon does have this weird, long-standing relationship with the, the boys because he was, of course, drawn into the very first episode, yeah. um, about which he was a real sport, by the way. Um, so it's been lovely. Uh, it, it's been lovely him uh, him doing that. I should say, also, it was nice to get a line out of him for the uh, the Hawk the Slayer miniseries. Because again, you know, there is that peculiar Simon Pegg, Hawk the Slayer crossover from Spaced. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was a nice thing too. Yeah. Good bloke, Simon. Yeah, I mean, sure. I think he writes the foreword in the the boys' uh, omnibus collection, so he writes the foreword for the first one. And I think it was I all about taking that call of "Can we draw your likeness into it?" And he's like, yeah, "I'm going to be in a comic book. This is amazing." Do you have a Do you have much involvement with the show at all, or is it just a case of here's the blueprint, here's the books? You know, you guys do what you want with it, or you know, is it easy to separate that? Is it easier and easier? And uh, honestly, as time goes by, the less involvement I have with it, um, I find that treating the two as separate is by far the more the more sensible option. Uh, to me, the show is its own success, and it ensures the continued success of the book. Mm-hmm. Its success means that the uh the seals of the book are maintained and in fact have risen uh, uh, this this can't come as a surprise for anyone have risen quite dramatically um so the show keeps the book current in its own per- particular way yeah no i mean i i see it as a retailer i mean the uh, it's a book we can't keep on the shelves you know because you know i i always uh i always sell it to people rightly or wrongly of you think the show's extreme read this you know that sort of thing, and people always come back that's to the second. Not a the bad, uh, that's not a bad way of looking at it because there will always be things we can do in comics mm-hmm. that they will balk at on TV and film. <laughs> yeah, that's just a fact. Um, and I mean, the other whenever we're talking about the, you know, how relevant the boys is. I mean, I think we probably reckon that you maybe had a past career as a as a soothsayer because I mean, if you if you look at how relevant it is now, mm. even more so than than whenever it was first released, uh, yeah, it's really it's some really fantastic stuff. Well, it, it came out of the era of the uh, the Bush administration, the the uh, the George W. Bush administration, where uh, serious wrongdoing um, without comeuppance was finding its way into the political mainstream. 
um, the the two instances one would think of would be the invasion of Iraq uh, and the response or lack of it to the Hurricane Katrina disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're talking about unpunished wrongdoing and you're talking about ordinary people being abandoned by those who should look after them. And it was it was elements like that feeding into a narrative about superhuman power um, and superhuman wrongdoing and superhuman irresponsibility um, that really made the boys into what it was. And of course, in political terms, in the real world, uh, it turns out that the second Bush administration was barely even a precursor to what came along in 2016. (laughs) <laughs> and it's been plaguing us ever since, you know, uh-huh. in, in the UK and the US, a, a figure who who can do no wrong, no matter how much wrong he does. It uh, it's what what you're talking about that surprised me as well. But it it has given the boys a sort of a a, a gruesome relevance that I guess I guess helps the success of of both book and uh, and TV show, but. But at the same time, is enough to send a shiver down the spine. Mm-hmm. Very much so. No, very, very much so. I mean, working in some of the stuff from the, you know, the attacks on the Capitol and stuff like that into the recent season, it just, as I say, it's scary how relevant it is. And you know, yeah. even when Homelander literally kills someone in front of a a watching audience, he can still do no wrong. They're cheering him, and you're, the 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 Trump parallels are, are incredible. But uh, but anyway, TV questions over. Let's focus on the good stuff, the comic side of things. So, I wanted to talk a little bit about your DC stuff. I mean, you know, Batman mm-hmm. Reptilian, of course, came out recently with Liam Sharp. You know, there was of course a fitting tribute to the late, very great Steve Dillon in the book, and also mm-hmm. the revelation that the project, as you say, was originally written with him in mind. I mean, how long yeah. did you have the seeds for Reptilian in your head? It came about in early 2016 Steve had been ill for a long time but he was getting better and he was on his way back uh career wise and um it occurred to me that uh if we were to do a book like Batman together if we were to do the most cutthroat commercial project we possibly could we'd essentially have the preacher team on a Batman book as the preacher TV show was coming out. And I couldn't imagine anything that would help Steve get back up to where he belonged more than something like that. So it was a fairly ruthless decision. So I wrote the scripts and then sadly, of course, fate intervened in the worst possible way and Steve passed and the script sat around for a while. And then it was actually Marie Javins who I mentioned earlier, who said, you know, Liam Sharp, is coming off a big project soon he could do it and Liam and I have been friends for 30 years and we've never worked together so it seemed like ah yes you know here's this is the obvious thing to do that was really its genesis it's full of I suppose the ideas I had about Batman that I got from Dark Knight and uh uh year one and to an extent killing joke that that sort of darker Batman that was in vogue at the time that's why you know batman is such a scary bastard in it and and a bit of a ruthless inhuman scary bastard at the same time you have to understand that i probably haven't read a batman comic cover to cover since 
when did mad love come out was that the 90s oh, yeah it would have been the 90s not long after the animated show had introduced harley that was the origin of, of harley right that's probably the last time i had read a batman comic um I'd been vaguely aware of what was going on with the character because uh, writing Hitman, which was, of course, set in a peculiar corner of Gotham City, I had to be aware of um, the big bat crossovers and events that were going on at the time and and kind of write Hitman around that stuff. It, mm -hmm. it was all terrible. It was all awful. But it was something I had to be aware of. But in terms of the actual character himself, that's about as much as I knew. So you're talking about someone with a sort of quarter century gap in his Batman knowledge sitting down to write Batman uh, that and Reptilian was the result yeah I mean it's it's very much a, a book of two parts for me you know the you know we, we do a reviews podcast for the store and like Batman Reptilian one was my pick of the week the week it came out because it was so down and dirty and gritty and I love the idea of this you know guy on the steps of the courthouse bragging and Batman just coming through the crowd and you know humiliating them in front of everybody and all that kind of stuff but the the book becomes very different by the end you know it's sort of almost like a big action based almost kaiju book I mean was that massive change deliberate in your part to sort of throw the reader a little bit I think it was probably just a question of amping up the action to you know the uh pulse pounding climax mm -hmm. true believer but <laughs> I think it was a question really of isolating what i could use from the batman universe which i find to be not much mm -hmm. so you'll find that the uh that the first couple of issues you see the regular batman rogues gallery being flattened uh because i find them so annoying i just find them this, this sort of weird chattering multicolored, idiotic incredibly annoying bunch of well anyway uh <laughs> The Joker gets a, an episode to himself for his own uh, uh, mutilation because I find him particularly annoying. And then the story settles on Killer Croc because I think he's really the only character who I who I could take seriously enough as being physically imposing enough to cause a threat to Batman. Mm -hmm. That's probably why I glommed onto him in the first place. Of course, by the time Batman discovers him, he's in no shape to be a threat to anyone. And the real problem is developing from a different direction, but it, it's it, it's it's a result of me having this bright idea to help Steve out by doing a Batman book, and then looking at Batman and thinking, "Oh God, there's not much I can do here," and having to clear the decks of all the sort of chattering rabble, so that I can focus on something new. Um, it, it's interesting, actually, if you think about it. The original Dark Knight, very few of his villains are in it. Yeah. Um, two faces in it at the start, and he's not even two face. And then the Joker's in it, and he causes a certain amount of trouble. But apart from that, yeah, that's it's it. more to do with the mutants. The real and problem, yeah. of course, is Superman in that book, and that again from another direction entirely. So you can see that that Frank Miller's thinking: if I'm going to do a serious piece of uh, of noir pulp fiction. The quickest way for me to ruin it will be to have Tweedledum and Tweedledee running about the place or Killer Moth or, or I mean, clues in the name, Killer Moth and so <laughs> on and so forth. Um, so, you know, if you're going to do for me, for someone 
like me who's not a Batman fan, the only way to do a Batman story really is to clear the decks of all the sort of irritating interference so that you can get on with something of your own. I think that's a very good point as well, because even if you look at Batman Year One, it's pre all of those villains. So I think what you're saying is quite accurate, that maybe even Frank Miller doesn't have that much of an interest. Similar to what you're saying, it's sort of like, clear the decks, just let's get one or two of these villains that I can work with and then sort of go from there. It's an interesting point, actually. Certainly the Frank Miller of that era you know, who was very good at isolating what was good about a character and a concept and not letting the rest of the stuff get in the way. Mm -hmm. Um, When Catwoman shows up in Batman year one, she she does not have some carefully thought out uh, costume. Uh, She just puts on a sort of like a like a leotard cat costume thing that she could have got in a store in a costume store. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it looks like somebody's Halloween party outfit. Um, it's Frank sort of showing you the closest way this could work in, for want of a better term, the real world, because he doesn't need the fantasy stuff ruining his Pulp Fiction. Mm. And uh, anything else on your slate for DC uh, coming up? Anything you can tell us about? For DC, uh, nothing I can tell you about, but some possibilities. Um maybe maybe some characters i haven't written in a while maybe not uh let's say talks are ongoing <laughs> we'll we'll take that and yeah. uh just uh just switch into uh switch into marvel ways i mean mm-hmm. you you have been and and to some extent will always be synonymous with the punisher mm-hmm. what what attracted you to frank castle in the fir- first place and do you think there's a place for the character in the modern world given the the recent difficulties with 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 that character yeah um uh first of all what attracted me to frank was he reminded me of the characters i grew up on he reminded me of those sort of hard-faced stoic uh cold as ice gunfighters that i'd seen in 2080 most obviously johnny alpha and judge dread mm-hmm. um and i think that is because of course frank more or less is inspired by the same cinematic characters that inspired dread and johnny alpha and i suppose dredger as -hmm. well i mean dredger even looks like dirty harry so that's that's why i like frank as to using the character um yes i think it can be done i think there is a place for smartly written vigilante noir stories again good pulp fiction I think that I still maintain that the quickest way to to wreck most Punisher stories is to put superheroes in them. So I think the best way to write the Punisher is is really to do it the way I've been doing for the past 20 years or so. Put him in his own world. Forget about all the the multicolored stuff and, and tell crime stories and forget about superhero stories. As for the problems the character has been having, I would contend that that largely comes down to the anxiety of people with a desperate desire to make a difference we'll solve police violence by changing the punisher's symbol um that will not stop a single police officer from picking on a minority it will not it does not matter what they wear on their uniforms or pace to the side of their cars they're either trained properly to do the job or they're not They can either sublimate their own prejudices or they can't. This 
this is window dressing uh changing the punisher around or canceling the punisher and i mean that in a comic book sense where you terminate mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. not cancel culture canceling the punisher will make no difference to these problems whatsoever it will just it will just make the person who makes that decision feel better about what they've done and also the kind of people who get anxious about things and express that anxiety on social media half the problem not to go off on a tangent here but half the problem of the last six years has been people mistaking the moral high ground on social media for actual political power this is a prime example i'm sorry to say mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's it i mean marvel do seem to be quite cagey with the punisher these days you know we we chatted to you know declan shelby recently about his disappointment he had drawn four out of five issues for a miniseries called Punish punisher barracuda with ed brisson it's just been shelved, mm -hmm. hasn't seen the light of day. And, and even the main title, I don't know if you keep up to date with it or not, but the main title from Jason Aaron and uh, Paul Azaketa and Jesus Says, you know, it's been really, really good, but it's very, very mm -hmm. different. You know, it's seen a change with Frank taking up swords as opposed to guns. I mean, that's yeah. that's less violent, isn't it? But uh, I know that you had initially, it was going to be two miniseries you were releasing them. Am I right? You had Punisher Soviet. Was there going to be another one lined up? Uh, there is another one that'll see print next year. It's called uh, Get Fury. Mm -hmm. It's set in Vietnam, so technically he's not the Punisher, so the, the skull won't appear, so therefore we should be all right. And certainly, uh, I was speaking to people at Marvel recently, and they don't seem to have any problem with it. What would happen if I was to pitch them a new contemporary Punisher set in the present day where he is unquestionably the Punisher with the skull on his mm -hmm. chest and all the other trappings. I don't know. I don't know. I've seen the um, the, the sort of alternate ninja version. I mean, it's done by Jason uh, and Torin Grunbeck's writing some of it as well. So it's well done, but it's just not for me because it's drifting into superhero territory mm -hmm. uh, ultimately. What would happen, on the other hand, if someone was to simply say you can do all the Punisher you want, but he doesn't have a skull on his chest? That wouldn't bother me for a second. Um, the, the symbol is not the character. The symbol is just a great big eye-catching uh, and gunsight drawing symbol to, to pull the shooter's eye onto his armored chest rather than his unarmored head. So mm -hmm. it's like Batman's yellow and black thing, bat symbol thing. It, it's just a a piece of psychological warfare designed to draw the eye. If you told me that we had to take that out of the uh, equation, I wouldn't care for a second. What they'll do long-term, I do not know. But as far as I know, there shouldn't be any trouble with my Vietnam story next year. I mean, and that, just what you say about the, the, the symbol on the chest, it always confused me, therefore, why Bullseye wore a target in his head. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, I mean, we just should say, I mean, we were we really enjoyed... Punisher Soviet, and okay. therefore very glad that it snuck through before Marvel took their about turn on the character. And I'm sure things will will uh, will turn around again. So yeah, I mean, moving away from that, I mean, you've you've always kept your links and relationship with Rebellion, you know, 2000 AD, and have mm. work going going with them at the moment. Of course, you mentioned Hawk the Slayer, the recent Battle Action Special as two examples. What's so special about working with 2000 AD? On one level. I did grow up on 2000 and I have a good deal of nostalgia for it. On the other hand, uh, when I worked for them before, back in the early 90s, well, I wasn't up to the job and I didn't get much sense of editorial enthusiasm at that time. 
I talked about the kind of competence that I found in American comics. Sadly, at the time in British comics, the good guys, uh, people like Steve McManus and Peter Hogan had been sort of shoved into the background. And I found myself working with people whose enthusiasm did not match my own. Uh, I was certainly lacking in ability at that point, but not in enthusiasm. And when you when you're working with people who you get no sense of enthusiasm from at all, it it does something to your own morale. I'm pleased to say that now, after many, many years working with Rebellion, uh, I find people whose enthusiasm more than matches mine and they're a pleasure to work with. They're also extremely competent. So the problems I used to have with British comics uh, are gone. And it is it is very nice to work with people who want to put out good stuff. 2018, you know, work I would do for 2000 would be limited. You'll see a short story here, a slightly longer story there. I can't go into detail. Um, there is one coming up with Kevin O'Neill. I think will give people a, a bit of a giggle. The majority of the work I would do for Rebellion will, will be uh, forthcoming projects on battle action. I, again, I can't go into detail, but it won't surprise anyone who's read the special to learn that there will be more. We are going to do more uh, in that particular department. Um, the difference, I think, is that on 2000 AD, you have 45 years of history. With battle action, you had about 10, and then it was interrupted, and then there was nothing for 35 or 40 years. So with battle action, you're not talking... I said this something similar about Hawk the Slayer, actually. You're not talking about a massive franchise that has had multiple series a movie, a TV spin-off. You're not talking about something that's on every T-shirt and every poster. You're talking about something with battle action that has pretty much lain fallow for 35 years, I think. I, I remember you said that uh, you know you were reading Battle towards the end, but I think even by then it was mostly reprint, which is as good a way to read those stories as any. But you're talking about 35 years of dead space where nothing new is being done. And I... That's where I find my creative interest in something. Stories that I read in my childhood that just ended and went nowhere and all their creative possibilities were left dangling. And hopefully I can now pick some of those up and explore them. I'm not saying that there's nothing new to be done with Dread or any of the, uh, or some of the other characters, but if there is, I'm not the one to explore it. Yeah. yeah I mean, that, that battle action special was, it was, Great surprise to see it come out. Uh, it was great to see the likes of, uh, you know, US fighter pilot, sort of Johnny Red, yeah. uh, sort of back there, Dredger, you know, some of those characters. And as you say, I didn't get, get into it until a little later, but uh, yeah. Battle was definitely one of my one of my formative uh, formative comic reading experiences. Even yeah. as you say, it was it was mostly reprints and was moving towards that slightly more uh, storm foresee and that that merge with with Eagle. But you mentioned Hawk the Slayer. Uh, mm -hmm. which is your, your recent miniseries from Rebellion with uh, legendary Judge Dredd artist Harry Flint. It is mm -hmm. a sequel to a cult classic movie of the same name. Absolutely great book. Totally captured, you know, the, the feel and the theme of the movie. But it's definitely an out-there choice for a book. What's the story behind that? Is it a, a favourite of yours? or It is. It is. Um, sometimes you have ideas that just won't go away no matter <laughs> what. Um, and it's something that for some reason got a lock on my imagination when I was 10 or 11 years old and wouldn't go away. 
And I don't mean in that so bad it's good way that people are are fond of talking about, you know, that, that sort of uber irony that I, I almost find a bit tiresome. To me, bad is just bad. Hawk has enough good stuff about it that, that it, it sort of overcomes the cheese. Uh, that won't be true for everyone, but it, it is for me. And it was it was really just an idea that persisted for years and years. Um, sometimes it, it was almost a kind of a challenge. People would say to me, publishers would say to me, is there a franchise you'd like to revive? Uh, would you like to bring something back? And I would say, yeah, see if you can get the rights to Hawk the Slayer. Thinking, ha ha, you know, impossible. But of course, these things have a way of taking on a life of, your, of their own. Word spreads. It's mentioned to publishers that I want to do this thing. And in the meantime, in my head, the, the question, supposing you did, just supposing you did, what would you do exactly? That's churning away too. And what you get, you get scenes, you get new characters, you get locations. Pretty soon you've got a story and that's the result. Um, and I must say, Henry did an absolutely fantastic job on it. I mean, the, the word I've used in connection with his art on that book is lush. I just find it yes. lush. It's, it's like a sumptuous feast. Um, it was a pleasure to see him do that, actually. A, absolute beautiful job. I think he surprised himself a bit. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying. I mean, it's the combination of the of the writing and the dialogue, you know, the dialogue really matches their, the dialogue from the original movie. You can, you can almost, I can almost, you know, read it in the voices, you know, and the, the, the patterns. But as you say, that, uh, that art really, it really conjured up sort of those, those themes and those tones and those, those feelings. So great. Work. Yeah. It looks like the old one as yeah. it should. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, we're, we're going to start winding down here. You've been extremely generous with your time. We've just got a, a couple more short questions just to finish off with. Uh, I, I wanted to mention Land and the Eagle, of course, you know, tr uh, trade collection coming up for that soon. You know, there, there's always, you, you always seem to enjoy writing war stories. What is it about war stories that appeals so much to you? Um, partly it's, uh, like everyone else in the business, I look to the stuff I grew up on. Um, and I grew up apart from 2008, largely on war stories. Beyond that, reading war stories and watching war movies and coming to the understanding as a kid that even allowing for the obvious hyperbole that, that surround surrounds any kind of fiction, but in this instance, military fiction, um, this, these are stories that were based on things that were done by real people. That, I think, got a hold of me in a way that a lot of fantasy material never really did or, or not to the same extent. Um, and so it, it led me to an interest in military history where I find out more and more about the things that happened in real life. Um, and if ever there was a case of um, truth being stranger than fiction, you'll you'll find it in military history and memoirs you, you'll see the stuff that that just boggles the mind um and so it was that when i got to the point where i could start doing a lot of my own stuff war comics were the obvious genre for me to go to um and you'll see that continue as well both my own stuff like the lion and the eagle and the string bags and so on uh, and more battle action just because i think that those battle action characters are are worth persisting with 
it's clear you've developed a, like a real uh, knowledge base with regard to to military history. You know, I've, I've, I've mm. listened to other interviews with you and read other interviews with you, and uh, <laughs> you could. It seems like you could easily have turned your hand to to writing, you know, military fiction books or novels or or even mm. you know history. So we're really glad that you've decided to to express that through the through the visual medium. Yeah, you know, I, I could have, but I sometimes think about this. You know, in in about. 20 plus years of writing war comics i've been able to uh, to cover i mean i've written several dozen issues of things and i've been able to go from the battle of kursk to toronto to uh the jungles of burma to the hunt for the bismarck to the yom kippur war in israel uh to the jungles of vietnam um if i was a filmmaker I'd never be able to to get anywhere near that record. Um, apart from the fact that war movies uh, tend not to perform as well as a lot of other genres, straight war movies I'm talking about here, I'd never have been able to get the, the budgets together for a fraction of those <laughs> topics and, and cover a fraction of that territory. I'd never have gotten near it. Same with novels. Uh, novels are easy too, but again, you got to think about the market. With comics, there is still that wonderful feeling: go anywhere, do anything, say whatever you want. And applied to war movies, it get it, or sorry, to war comics, it gets me. Um, well, it gets me the stuff I've been able to do all these years, and the stuff I'm going to continue to do. So it's the immediacy and the ease with which you can do comics that I think has has stood me in good stead here. And, uh, you know, speaking of uh, saying what you want, we, we recently chatted to the fantastic Torin Gronbeck, uh, mm. who, uh, who shares your, your love of war stories. Yes. And uh, we, hope to, we hope to have her uh, in the store at some point in the future. But surely there's a, there's a collaboration coming there sometime in the future? Um, not exactly a collaboration, but she, uh, Torin will, will be working on a war story soon, something that, that I am peripherally involved with. Oh, you're, you're, you're so good at keeping these secrets. We, we keep trying to trip you up and it's just not happening. But uh, but yeah, final few questions and we have to talk quickly about Earth. Where in Earth. the world did the idea for a children's book come from? You know, we, we enjoyed it so much. You know, my obviously my other half, Vicky, was down seeing you then a skill and you very kindly yeah, yeah, of course, signed yeah. it to Alfie, who is now here in the world and healthy and happy and, and everything else. Good. Uh, Glad we, to hear you. We even released a podcast episode where I did a read along of the book, and I, I did oh, nice one. I did voices and everything. And we've got a lot of younger readers in store. I pass on to them for them to uh, to listen along with the book. But I, uh-huh. it, it'll never cease to amaze me that they literally said from the creator of Punisher, from the writer of Punisher right. and creator of Preacher, comes a children's book. Where, where did the idea for a children's book come from? Um, a variety of things. I'd become friends with uh, Rob Stein, who was the illustrator of Ricky Gervais' Flanimals children's books, which I liked very much. Um, my wife and I, we don't have kids of our own, but uh, we have uh, many friends who have kids, of course. And you find yourself buying them books, you know, children's books. And I found myself looking at some of these books and just being really impressed by the stories and, and the art. Uh, I mean, there's a lot I could mention, but the most obvious one is John Classen, and I want my hat back. Uh, so a degree of inventiveness that, that that really sort of sparked me off. And then 
more specifically, or Earth, you'll not be surprised to hear, is essentially based on one of those diagrams of evolution where the little tadpole thing becomes a lizard or a frog that slithers up onto the land that becomes a biped that is soon a monkey that becomes a caveman that is, mm -hmm. you know, a homo sapiens. Um, and I think that was probably where I got the idea. Um, as to why I did it, um, well, all when you have an idea, I always think it does have to be used, uh, especially when it's kind of crying out to be used. Also, about 10 or 15 years ago, um, I found myself getting disturbed by the rise of this sort of celebration of ignorance, mm. um, combined with, which is which is still prevalent, um, combined with um this is something that comes from the Bush era as well. I'm sorry to say people turning back towards what I might call the, the ignorance of organized religion and and uh, and away from the the enlightenment of science and seeing that and being depressed by it and thinking I should say something about this. Earth seem Earth is the result. Earth seemed to be the best way to say something, I suppose. To indoctrinate children and who doesn't like to <laughs> you're, uh, you're talking to someone who was heavily involved in removing the creationism from the giants causeway uh exhibit many many uh, years ago that. so so I'm, I'm right with you i'm right with you um so we're we're getting very close to the, to the end of our chat and it's been it has been absolutely wonderful chatting to you and, and about all of these these different things before we before we wind up, is there anything else in the pipeline you'd like to tell us about? Anything that we can we can tell our listeners about? Anything you'd like to push? Well, let's think. Um, there there are bits and pieces coming up for two thousand AD. There will be an announcement about more battle action soon, uh, in a month or so. There's Jimmy's Little Bastards, which has just started coming out from Aftershock. You mentioned there's going to be a. a uh, uh, collection of the lion and the eagle um beyond that next year we'll see punisher get fury the the vietnam story and jason burroughs is currently drawing a brand new horror story uh for me that um i can't go into in too much detail but it does have a sort of vaguely irish bent um you'll see that when it comes out but um that should be out sometime next year wonderful perfect. perfect well you know we we gave you the forewarning at the start we always like to finish our interviews right. in the exact same way so we're just curious you know if you have a favorite dc series of all time a favorite marvel series of all time and a favorite indie series of all time all right uh well let's see dc i would probably say screamer it would be something like watchman or swamp thing but i like miracle man better than both of them and V for Vendetta technically isn't DC. It started with Warrior. So I'm going to go for Screamer by Peter Milligan and the sadly no longer with us, Brett Ewens and Steve Dillon. Um, Screamer, I'm not sure if it's in print, but it's a it's a sort of future dystopia story about a, a city ruled by gangs with Vito Screamer, who's one of those giant Brett Ewens characters in the mold of Kano, uh, for instance in charge of the biggest gang and the uh the story it, his story is contrasted with that of an ordinary family uh trying to trying to survive in this hellish future society that, that Vito has helped create um so wonderfully stark artwork by by Steve and Brett and a really smart story by by Pete Milligan um 
must be almost 30 years old now, had had kind of a a, a convoluted uh, history as regards its actual creation, um, but it helped launch uh, Steve in particular in the US. Uh, and of course, I did very well out of that, but a really good one if you if you can get hold of it. Marvel, uh, I'm going to probably go for Electra Assassin, which ultimately I think is my favorite of Frank's 80s work, uh, you know, the, the best period in his work when um, Electra is, of course, the story of the uh, female assassin he introduced in Daredevil. You could build Sankovitz on the art. The thing is crazy. It's one big hallucinogenic, super violent rush. It's like both of them are off their heads on drugs. And yet, you know, there's a coherent story in there behind all the madness. Um, some rough stuff in there, some very funny stuff in there, the kind of characters that would probably not pass muster today, but the sort of the sort of stuff I love reading, you know, sex, drugs, politics samurai swords you name it and indie comics uh i would say that concrete by paul chadwick is probably the best comic of the last 40 years i think wow. it's that good it's so well written and well drawn and for the fact that it's about a, a bloke whose brain is stolen by aliens and stuck in a big concrete body one of the most human stories i've ever read in comics um there's a sort of a uh, an incredible creative coherence and care brought to that book. It it really is, I think, one of the most tremendous, very low key, but one of the most tremendous stories you'll ever read in comics. Excellent. So there's your three. Excellent. Three very diverse answers there. And I'm definitely going to have to look up uh, Screamer, especially. That sounds really, really interesting. Uh, mm. So yeah, so that is that is everything from us. I mean, as I say, you've been exceptionally generous for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. You know, you really have written some of the most important books, certainly in my comic reading uh, lifetime. As I say, uh, books that I always go back to, books that are, you know, endlessly rereadable as well. So, uh, you know, I thank you for that. And, and of course, you guys, you can meet the man himself in Forbidden Planet. You're, of course, coming over uh, to Belfast for a signing soon. Uh, Saturday 3rd of September, I believe, uh, from 1 That's p.m. Right. to 3 p.m. So you may get there early because there's going to be a big queue I may even be at the head of it. I may just have to get Vicky to watch the store that day. We shall see. We'll be there. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, guys. Really enjoyed that. Cheers. Oh, it's been an absolute thanks. pleasure. Thanks so, very much. Hope you listeners, right. hope you guys enjoyed that. And uh, we'll look forward to being back with you soon. So thanks again. So I've been Alan Taylor, and this has been Keith Miller. You can find Alan in store at Coffee and Heroes and on Twitter, where Alan is at Coffee and Heroes 1, and I'm Ascanison00. Coffee and Heroes is a local comic book shop, coffee shop and community hub in Northern Ireland based at Smithfield Market in the centre of Belfast. You can find Coffee and Heroes on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or email us at coffeeandheroes at hotmail.com. Make sure to check out our YouTube channel as well. The Coffee and Heroes podcast is available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and through all good podcast platforms. Please like and subscribe and leave a review so more people can find us. And until next time, happy reading and hope to see you in store.